This is Cultural Debris with host Alan Cornett. Welcome back to Cultural Debris. We actually had snow last week. Now suddenly it feels like late spring at 80 degrees and I'm behind on my weeding and planting. My current project is removing a bed of monkey grass planted by some unwise previous owner beside our patio. Don't ever plant monkey grass. I continue to receive positive feedback on our episodes and I thank all of you who continue to listen leave five-star ratings, and recommend the podcast to others. And a particular thanks to our patrons over at patreon.com slash culturaldebris. Please visit Patreon and check out the short videos I've posted. More to come. They're freely available to watch. And perhaps consider supporting the podcast. You've heard me mention my eBay art dealer who tends to list old lithographs and illustrations I like to buy. Recently, I purchased a couple of late 19th century lithographs by British artist William Rothenstein, including one of a very young Hilaire Belloc. In a note, my print purveyor alluded to a Rothenstein connection to my home of Lexington, Kentucky. A book showed up then, last week, the first volume of William Rothenstein's son, John Rothenstein's autobiography titled Summer's Lease. John was a well-known art critic and also director of London's famous Tate Gallery. A note accompanying the book suggested checking out chapter 5. In his biography, John records how fresh out of Oxford he ended up in Lexington at the University of Kentucky for his first teaching job. He also met his wife Elizabeth, a student from an old Lexington family, and he has a fascinating discussion of the city and surrounding horse farms from the late 1920s. This includes an account of his wedding, which happened at Christ Church Cathedral, which still stands, and the church at which a cousin of mine was married a quarter of a century or so ago, and I was in the wedding, and so felt a, a bit of a connection there. I couldn't help but laugh at John Rothenstein's account of the fallout from his very first lecture at the University of Kentucky. He writes, My first lecture, which did not turn out as badly as I had feared, had one singular consequence— Several students resigned from my course on the grounds that they could not understand me, and others joined because they liked to listen to the kind of English I spoke. One of my students, a hillbilly from the mountains, who fell into neither of these categories, hearing that I had been in the United States for no more than a week, declared approvingly, You sure have learnt American fast. These students would have been around the same age as my grandfather, who was also a hillbilly from eastern Kentucky. And that makes me smile to think about. Our poem this episode is from William Carlos Williams and is called Epitaph. An old willow with hollow branches slowly swayed his few high bright tendrils and sang. 
Love is a young green willow shimmering at the bare woods edge. My guest is Eric Bootsma, a classical architect who specializes in ecclesiastical architecture. Eric was trained at the University of Notre Dame School of Architecture, which focuses on traditional forms of architecture. He and I discuss the role and modern degradation of architecture, Russell Kirk on modern architecture, the church recovations of the 1960s, and the attempts to return to traditional understandings of sacred space. Plus, we take a look at Prince Charles's book, A Vision of Britain, and the Prince's model city of Poundbury. It's a packed discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it. Eric Bootsma, welcome to Cultural Debris. Good evening. Good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. You bill yourself on your website as a classical architect. What is that? What does that mean? Well, a classical architect is a is a sort of a uh, you could say it's a bit of an anachronism today. Um, given the state of architecture um, and, and modern architecture today, because we don't, um, as classical architects, we don't necessarily uh, keep up with the latest trends and fads and, and uh, fashions that you find in architecture, but yet look back to the past and look back to uh, basically the greatest architects of, of, of history and try to not copy them, but try to emulate what they were looking at. Uh, and then, in particular, Western classical architecture uh, has a certain idiom that it has. It has a language. It has a language of Roman and Greek classicism, which um, uh, basically consists of uh, the different orders of columns. So, uh, in in school, we learn uh, there are basically three sets of column orders: uh, and the, the Doric, the Ionic, and the Corinthian. To which uh, later uh, uh, writers add on to it the uh, composite and the Tuscan, but but basically it, it it comes down to these are orders of columns. It's 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 a decorative scheme. It's a proportional scheme, and it's um, it's a language that uh, that we 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 start to work in. And so in Western classical architecture, there's a particular language that we adopt uh, that that. Uh, we apply to, to buildings to decorate them, to make them and give them a certain sort of order and hierarchy to them so that uh, we begin to understand uh, things about the building just by looking at it. Um, uh, a classical architect understands that a building is, is um, more than just its use, but uh, certain things about its use can start to be communicated quite easily by how you articulate the facade, how you articulate uh, working through the building, walking through it in the different spaces that you have. So, uh, But I think fundamentally what classical architecture uh, comes down to is that we, uh, we believe that beauty that we, we see in front of our eyes every day is not something that we create but rather it's something that is found in the world. It's found in nature. It's found in the, in, in, in the creation that we have and that all we need to do is discover it and unlock it 
rather than try to create something new uh, out of whole cloth. So that's that's kind of really the, the really essence of it. Um, so so basically, you're you're trying to to continue a tradition that itself sought to be harmonious with certain um, sort of natural uh, proportions and and that and that kind of thing. That it, it this the idea of classical architecture is not uh, at its foundation something that we would simply claim is artificial, but rather, as, as you said, it's kind of an unlocking of what what is is within creation, I guess I would say. Yeah, I think in essence that, that that's what it is. I mean, there's there's lots of, like I said, there's there's certain sort of idioms and language and, and traditions that we've we've gotten handed down to us, uh, particularly in America, through through England, through Italy, through Rome, Greece, etc. Um, and these are, you know, particular idioms of, of a language and language I think is a, is, has been used as a, as a anal, analogical way of thinking about architecture because uh, a language is always sort of passed down and, it, and it's also transformed over the course of history. But it, there's definitely uh, a history there that you, that once a culture sort of adopts a language, it, it has a language and it doesn't adopt a language. It's, it's there, it's given to us. And so it's not something we can just sort of, uh, uproot and re- recreate, you know, in a, a new sort of like Esperanto, you know, it never really takes because, uh, because the culture it's, it's, it's a part of our, our very being as a culture. So, so in America, we have, we have that tradition of classical architecture, which is uh, a big part of, uh, our architectural identity. Um, there's also the Gothic architecture and, and, and now that, um, you know, we are a very multicultural society. Other architectures have, have, have become, you know, uh, absorbed into it. You know, Japanese architecture is now, you know, since Frank Lloyd Wright sort of brought it over to uh, these things are there. But, but predominantly we're a, a classical architecture. But but again, uh, but that that essence of it is that, uh, yeah, that that beauty is found in nature, both in uh uh, if I can give me a little esoteric in sort of in the, in, in the nature of the cosmos itself, uh, the nature of numbers and mathematics, but also in the, the nature of the human body. And so in the human body, we find uh, a certain beauty and a perfection to it. And so we're trying to emulate that. So um, there's a lot of great writers who talk about, uh, you know, churches being uh, a symbol of the body, uh, you know, the, the plan of a church. Uh, you know, the arms of a church, the cross, and the head of the church being where the uh, sanctuary is. Uh, but uh, but also like the column itself, it it stands as a human body. And so the Corinthian is this sort of graceful and tall column, whereas like the Tuscan on the other end is just sort of brutish and strong and uh, very simplistic uh, uh, column. So it, it represents sort of two different human natures, you know, one very elegant and refined and the other just sort of work a day and and uh, and just stolid you made a reference to gothic architecture and i'm i'm curious i, I know that you know, you're a classical architect uh obviously gothic is a traditional western form but it's not what we would consider classical yet it kind of it fits within the overall western lineage how do we 
how do we understand something like Gothic within the, I guess, the classical genealogy? Well, it's, it's tough to, to, yeah, like you said, it's not what we consider to be classical architecture, but it definitely has that same sort of notion of beauty as being this, this thing that we're trying to discover rather than create. So it, it is, um, uh, it's definitely within that. Um, but, uh, but again, yeah, it, it, it just, it's, it has the same sort of essence, but it has a different language to it. Right. Um, some of the language that it has it adopted through the Romanesque architecture, which came before it, but the Romanesque was, uh, adopted from the Roman architecture, classical architecture, but it was, it was transformed in a way through, um, just conditions that you had and, and, and traditions. So in a sense, it has the same sort of lineage. So the Gothic goes back to the Romanesque, which goes back to the Roman. It, it, it's, it's a sort of similar sort of thing that if we say like the French language is a Latin language, whereas the Italian language is a Latin language as well, but they're, they're incomprehensible to each other, but, but yet they, they, they share common characteristics, but they also share a common, uh, uh, background and they, they, but they also share the common thing that they're trying to communicate something. So, so that's, that's why it is, it continues to be a classical architecture. And this is why, you know, strictly speaking, you know, I say Japanese architecture, Chinese architecture, um, Islamic architecture is classical architecture in that very same sense. Um, but uh, but it's the sense that it's a different language speaking the same uh, with the same principles, right? So so how did you become an architect? What what led you to this, and what what drew you into uh, to not only architecture but to to the classical side of architecture? Because that that doesn't seem to be the uh, the norm these days. Well, no, it's um uh, what really I think it was kind of a. Uh, combination of things my 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 father was a contractor uh, up until recently uh, and so he was a builder uh, but my mother was a painter so i think the two sort of went together that uh, i had the sort of practical side and the artistic side of me were always there together uh, as i've over the years done architecture i've talked with my brothers who are a lawyer uh, or another brother works for hp they all sort of said I wish I had done architecture. So <laughs> in, in, in some sense, I think, I think it's probably part of the family sort of melding of things together. So, but, uh, but I never really sort of thought about it um, until I went to uh, my undergraduate education at Thomas Aquinas college in California, where um, it was actually just sort of a shot out of the blue that uh, I, I became quite good at geometry, which was just always a shock to me because in uh in high school, I was terrible at mathematics. Uh, it, it had to do a lot with the, the technique of how high school math was taught, was memorize this formula and, and apply it. And, uh, and, and I always said, but why? <laughs> uh, and so, but we learned Euclid in, um, in, uh, at Thomas Aquinas. And, uh, and my professor, uh, uh, it was actually uh, Dr. Uh, ben Weicker, who folks may know, uh, he told me, he says, you're very good at geometry. Have you ever considered architecture? And it just kind of just sort of struck me all of a sudden. And, and I, I became very interested in, in it after that and really sort of looked at it. I found out about the program at Notre Dame, which was doing classical uh, um, architecture 
with uh, Duncan Stroik and Thomas Gordon Smith uh, at the head there, uh, doing a lot of church architecture, and I became very interested in that at the time too. Uh, and this was a time in my life where I was uh, I was in the process of becoming Catholic, which is uh, now 20 years ago this this Easter. Um, but uh, they uh, got me interested in it, and uh, I think church architecture was one of the things that sort of put me over the line to become a Catholic. So, um, so that's how I kind of got into it. it. Took me several years to to be able to get into Notre Dame. I sort of felt like uh, Rudy because I applied like three times. And finally, <laughs> finally got in on the third time, and and uh, so uh, so yeah. So it, it just is all. I've I've always had a sense of of buildings and place, and and always uh, enjoyed that. And um, then I'd have to say though the other um, thing now that I'm sort of thinking about through my history is before I went to TAC, uh, I was involved with. Um, ISI, the Inter- Intercollegiate mm-hmm. Studies Institute, sure. and I got turned on to Russell Kirk at the time, and I was given a, I was given a, a through ISI, they gave me several books, and which I have, uh, I think almost all of them, uh, and uh, and one of them, I, I believe it was the Redeeming the Time. Uh, Russell Kirk had a small essay called The Architecture of Servitude and Boredom, which was a very striking essay, and I think this probably planted the seed in my mind uh, about sort of what was wrong with architecture today and that uh, there were things that uh, that we could uh, we could be aiming for that were, were much better. Um, right. And you you actually did uh, kind of a reflection of that essay that uh, that is on the Kirk Center website. And I'll I'll link that in in show notes where you talk about Dr. Kirk's uh being kind of, I guess, ahead of his time, if you will, in in assessing the uh, the the depressing nature of of contemporary architecture that that he saw in his lifetime. Yeah, that that is that is for sure. Uh, um, I think the essay was written in 1983, and you know, at the time, 1983, uh, modernist architecture pretty much was uh, was was there. There was no opposition to it. There was no one who, who 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 could stand up to it, or at least offer an alternative to it. There were no cl- real classical architects working at the time. There were a few. There were a handful, I think, working in England, maybe a f- handful in the United States, sort of just building houses, uh, but but not much at all. Uh, there certainly wasn't any uh, working uh, doing large civic projects that we have today. Uh, but one of the other things too, is in the 1980s, they, um, there was no, there was no sense that, uh, a traditional town, a traditional city, uh, had any worth to it. So, uh, one of the things that he, um, one of the things that he, uh, mentioned in, in, in particular in this essay was, uh, the destruction of Detroit, and uh, and Kirk coming from Michigan uh, knew this quite well, and how that they uh, in the '60s came through in the in the, the sort of perverse uh, uh, re- reversing of the terms and urban renewal came right. through and 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 bulldozed massive areas of the city and uh, you know it was urban renewal by erasing the urban fabric and. Um, and so, uh, so he talked a, a lot about that and about how uh, it was. This was just unopposed. I mean, there were there were really no 
uh, voices uh, against this. Um, perhaps in the 60s, you had Jane Jacobs talking about it, but for the most part, it was a very small and a very uh, uh, very sort of niche group of people who were opposing it. Certainly in in a, in the national consciousness, it wasn't there, and so and so so he he talked about the destruction of these neighborhoods as being you know just uh, not only just destroying beautiful architecture, but destroying the the nature of community and 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 and, um, and the connections that we had together. Uh, physically separating all of these things, uh, separating us from from each other, and and Detroit uh, for for a long time was uh, was a very uh, potent symbol of what uh, what that urban renewal uh, actually reaped. And um, right, and and going along with that, um, of course, was the the building of a lot of urban freeways, and and um, I saw uh, recently uh, a sort of a before and after. Uh, picture of Cincinnati, which is relatively close to me, of of what it looked like before they built the interstates, and then, you know, what it looks like now, which is basically just interstates, right, right in downtown, uh, going across the river from Kentucky, and, and of, it, it just completely wiped out, you know, a hundred years or more of, of development over time of these communities, that and of course nobody wants to live underneath a, an interstate, obviously. So you just you just wipe out any potential there. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's it was an incredibly destructive uh, period in the United States that um, we're still now sort of recovering from. And um, there's a lot of people who are who are doing good things in some cities, like for instance, San Francisco. Uh, a number of years ago. Uh, replaced its, uh, I believe it was like Embarcadero Freeway. So they had a freeway basically running along the waterfront in San Francisco, some of the most incredible uh, real estate in the entire country. Uh, they just mowed it down and it just was a, an auto sewer. Um, and so they intelligently have removed it. Uh, one of the early ones was actually in Portland, in Oregon, a, a city I know well, having grown up in Oregon. Um, they they removed a, a similar sort of riverside uh, freeway uh, in the, actually in the 1970s. So they they were very early uh, on this, but um, it was incredibly destructive. And um, I've, I've written some uh, some Twitter threads on things places like Norfolk, which uh, basically mowed down their entire uh, downtown historic core, and it, it's 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 absolutely flabbergasting what they did there and it wasn't just to put a freeway up it was just to replace it all with with uh new new buildings and you know i've looked at the old photos of it and and it would have been norfolk would have been a, a city uh ranked up there with charleston or or savannah for uh its southern charm uh but it uh, was all just mowed down in the 60s yeah, it's really uh, it's hard to get in the mindset of that time uh, here in Lexington, there is uh, an old late 19th century courthouse that uh, hasn't been a courthouse in a while, but uh, it's right in the heart of downtown. And during the 60s, it was renovated um, and they really did everything they could to sort of suck the soul out of the out of that building, which is a, a very... Uh, you know, it's it's a striking building. It's uh, probably, you know, it's in keeping with the kind of thing you would expect in sort of a uh, s- southern city of that of that size. 
uh, it has this nice rotunda on, on top of it and so forth, but they put in these, these drop ceilings and they, uh, you know, created these cubicles and everything. And so a few years ago, they began renovating it. Of course, they had moved the actual courthouse somewhere else. So it's, um, they were, it's now restaurants and event space and so forth. But they started, you know, removing these drop ceilings and everything and, and discovering all of these incredible uh, features of that were that were included in, you know, uh, 150 years ago when it was originally built. And it, it's, it's extraordinary. Uh what was there and it's hard to grasp the mindset of we you know we desperately need to cover that up with a drop ceiling uh and and live in these and operate in these sort of little little boxes uh and and it's incredible what i guess sort of what what we are willing to do to ourselves sometimes yeah, it really is. Um, it's a. It was a, a mindset. It was. Yeah, it is. It's difficult to grasp these days. That, you know, in the '60s, they basically thought everything was. You know, it, it really is. This comes down to the the uh, the early modernist. Everything that came in the past was a destructive thing, and so what we had to do in order to create a new man, in tor- in order to create a new uh, uh, utopian vision of the future, is we had to erase everything that came before. And so uh, what they couldn't erase, they would, of course, just recovate, uh, put the drop ceilings in it, whatnot. There was a uh, one of my favorite sort of horrible things was in the 60s. They would just basically put a, a metal facade over these old Victorian buildings. And, right. of course, now you can you can pull all those facades off. And now behind it is this beautiful old Victorian building. Um but um, but yeah, it was it was the same sort of mindset. I mean, and connected to you know the freeways and things like that. It was like we were recreating everything. We were not we were not looking at what works and what people enjoyed and wanted to be around and be a part of. Uh, we said we're going to create a new uh, a new architecture, a new way of living in cities, a new way of of doing everything. And so this sort of rationalization of everything. Uh, became very rampant and um i think it was very interesting to me is that you know this was part of what what kirk really sort of talked about a lot is this is this idea that utility uh just took over everything and and uh, it, it was a mindset in architects for sure and you know certainly the public sort of grasped onto this but uh we know how ex- experts are today you know that once the experts start telling us we need to do something we of course just nod our heads and say yes yes of course well, that must be right. absolutely they've they have the credentials so and the microphone so so we need to listen but but uh kirk and then really uh in in great britain uh scruton kind of takes up a lot of this too and and their voices that that really start uh writing about this and Dr. Kirk didn't write extensively about architecture, but he he did talk about it, you know, all along. It was it was a it was a continuing theme of 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 what he addressed, along with that idea of kind of that that boredom and and uh, the modern mindset. Um, of course, he was he was a great opponent of of cars in general, but especially freeways and and the destructive mm-hmm. nature of those. But but you see, you you have conservative voices, traditionalist voices like Kirk and Scruton, who who really sort of take this up and say, you know, this isn't um, this isn't how how we ought to operate. We don't have to be like this, and we're we're really just sort of 
giving away and have given away this this thousands of years of cultural heritage and humane living uh, all in the name of of so-called progress and mm. uh, and so there's this so that really they seem to me voices that sort of start prodding uh, maybe a, a reconsideration of those things Right, right. And I think it's very interesting that, um, yeah, that Kirk and, and Scruton really sort of bring together a, a conservative vision of, of urbanism uh, and, and architecture, um, that, uh, that it is uh, sort of in opposition to what we see in a lot of sort of popular conservative thought today. You know, a lot of popular conservative thought is that, well, you know, what we need to do is build more freeways and get everybody in the, the, the latest F-250 get everybody in the biggest SUV and get them going as fast as we can. Of course, uh, forgetting the fact that all of this is all uh, supported by massive government subsidy for, for freeways. <laughs> and, for sure. Uh, and, and I think during the Bush era, actual uh, tax breaks for those big SUVs too. But, um, but there's a conservative sort of idea that, 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 that we are made to live in community with each other. We're made to live in the city in, in in cities and towns, I mean, this was this is something that Scruton and I think Kirk, or you know, talked both about. But you know, it goes back as far as 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 Aristotle, who said that you know, man is a political animal, and we 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 need to live together. We need to be together. And I think I think this past year, with uh, the absurdity of all lockdowns, that it's sort of. Uh, brought this to a sort of clarity is that we, we, we desire to be amongst each other and be a part of each other and, and, and be a part of each other's lives. And the only way we can actually do that is by, by being face to face and being uh, on our feet and, 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 and mingling amongst each other. And uh, we can't do that by just simply being in our cars. And I think that's why um, Kirk and, and, and Scruton and other conservative thinkers on, on urbanism and architecture uh, think about this. And, you know, and, and um, like you said, the, the Kirk has it sort of sprinkled through his thought, but, it, you know, architecture is a thing that, um, you know, everybody has to have an opinion on it because we all deal with it every single day, whether we, we actually consciously think about it. Uh, we, we all inhabit a world which is built. Uh, we don't we don't all just live in teepees in 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 the prairies, but we live in buildings everywhere. So how our cities and our towns are are put together is 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 there in front of our face every single day. So it's it's one of those things that uh, we just can't not think about it. Right. It, it's it's there. I think part of our problem is that that most of us haven't thought about it. We just kind of, like you were saying earlier, we just kind of accepted what's been handed to us, and and then the results haven't been great. Um, right, right. And so the idea is trying to, I guess, is trying to get people. You say everybody has to deal with with architecture. It's it's a it's a public concern, and this is this is one of the things. Uh, and this is just a little tirade by me. We don't have to pursue this, but this is one of. The, <laughs> One of the things that frustrates me with some of these, some of the new urbanists uh, who I, new urbanism is a thing that I have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with because I, I really do appreciate uh, a lot of the, the fundamental concepts and, and the ideas that are part of it. But uh, a lot of times 
I see the sort of uh, this kind of disregard for any kind of uh, of harmonious architect uh, a desire for harmonious architecture of traditional architecture uh, and also a uh, almost uh, sort of extreme libertarian embracing of course a lot of these people are coming from the left but this sort of extreme libertarian uh, refusal to acknowledge uh, people who live around them so you know if, if I buy this lot next to you I can build a 10-story um, I can build a 10-story apartment complex and you know, if you never see the sun again, sorry, you know, that, that kind of idea. And, yeah. and I, f- I find that frustrating, but, and, right. and, uh, because that sort of thinking feeds into the so-called, uh, you know, NIMBY mindset, uh, right. not my right. backyard mindset, which they're trying to counter. But in, in doing that, I think a lot of times they, um, they, they become hostile. A lot of their, a lot of their proposals are hostile to what people have and people, you know, people are protective of that. Understandably so. Yeah. Well, I think the, um, a new urbanism definitely has that problem. And I think a lot of these, uh, problems of nimbyism, like you, like I think you, you, you noticed too, is that, uh, n- people are very hesitant to have a new, a new building go in next to them. Uh, 90 times, 90% of the time it's because the thing is so damned ugly. Right. And, absolutely. And that really is the, is the thing that, that, uh, that people have the, the biggest problem with is that over the course of my career, I've mostly found people who oppose things because they're just used to things just being ugly. So not having something built next to them, they may have a sort of a, uh, run-of-the-mill not very attractive but okay sort of building next to them but they'd much rather have that than uh usually what's uh what's put up there but right it's sort of the the devil the devil i know is better than the devil i don't know on, on yeah the, yeah on for sure so, so so it sort of feeds into that nimbyism and, and then the architecture uh uh, community itself doesn't really recognize that as a valid criticism. It doesn't recognize that as a valid thing to say. So, so you know, for instance, there was a, a recent uh, uh, building that just went up uh, right across the street from the Louvre in, in Paris, and they, they pulled down a sort of uh, average, you know, 19th century uh, apartment block and put up something that was just completely made of glass. Mm. Well, that would make me a NIMBY in an instant. And the, the building <laughs> right. there wasn't uh, uh wasn't horrible but if they put something up that looked at least similar to it and and it fit into its neighborhood i think everybody would have loved it they would have been fine with it uh, and you know i always like to say every building that we love was always at one time new sure and so and so at some point there was nothing there or there was something there that was uh may have been nice too but we've created something that was uh was beautiful um so it's a, it's a, it's it's a problem that the architects uh, and the architectural establishment now does not want to actually address, and that's that that subject of beauty. Right. Uh, yeah. I think that that I think you're right that that's kind of the, the elephant in the room that that if they that they could get a lot further with what with with their vision if they would give people something beautiful to embrace, and uh, I, I you know there are there are all kinds of buildings. I would love to see 
torn down and replaced with something beautiful. That's sort of my my mantra on on NIMBYism is, you know, go go tear down some strip malls and build something beautiful. And then then we can talk about, you know, what you want to do on this, you know, the the block next door or something, Uh, because there's plenty of just sort of ugly, wasted space out there that that ought to be re- redeveloped. And, you know, I, I'm not against tearing things down. In fact, there's a lot of things I would love to see torn down. Uh, I would just, uh, I just want them to, to put something beautiful uh, and, and functional in, in a humane sort of way in its place. Absolutely. I mean, this is why one of the, um, one of the big, um, at least architectural um, mentors that I sort of follow and others um, follow is Leon Creer. And he uh, he was actually set to be a signatory of the uh, uh, Congress for New Urbanism, their declaration of uh, their principles. But but uh, they did not want to make traditional architecture or beauty as part of that. And uh, he said he refused to, to sign on to it. And he's a big new urbanist uh, thinker, but he's not a signatory for the, you know, the founding document because of that, because of this sort of agnosticism towards style and, and, and architecture and beauty and, and place. And so, but, but he recognized, I think, correctly that it's, it's, it's essential to, um, to architecture is its, its appearance and its, and its ability to be, it doesn't necessarily have to be copying what is around it, but at least it actually um, fits in and, 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 and is a good neighbor to it. You know, right. you know, you yes. mentioned you know, the 10 story building next to the other, to a small house. That's a bad neighbor, but it's also um, a very bad neighbor if it was only, you know, two stories, but uh, in a completely alien style um, to what right. was, what was there before. Right, and that's that's one of the things that um, that often puts me at odds with people that I that I am in principle sympathetic with, but um, they uh, sort of force me into this into this position of of obstinance uh, be, because of that, and and I think that uh, that they could find more allies. Uh, if they would, uh, if they would be willing to to work on on those points. You're listening to the Cultural Debris Podcast. I want to shift a little bit. Uh, you mentioned earlier about uh, sort of the 1960s recovations, and of course, what that immediately brings to mind not only are things like our now beautifully restored uh, courthouse, but a lot of a lot of churches, and one of, of course one of your primary focuses in your own work is ecclesiastical uh, architecture, and there were a lot of these recovations in the fifties and sixties. And uh, I know so uh, a a lecture that you had given where you were pointing out uh, and speaking. This is addressing particularly. Uh, Catholic architecture, but but this wasn't something that was a result of Vatican II, but but it it predates it uh, along with what we see it with everything else that this that this was a mindset shift that wasn't really ecclesiastical, but was was cultural in a broader sense. Yes, yes, it definitely was. Um, there's um, I'll see if I can find this book um, in. Uh written on uh, on church architecture but it was definitely um 
the 1950s was a very much a crossroad. Um, uh, liturgically, of course, uh, things were starting to shift even well before Vatican II. And uh, there was, um, in the United States particularly, uh, was very strong for this sort of radicalism in the liturgy and in architecture and in art was at um, the uh, St. John's Collegeville. And uh, in the 1950s, they built a new chapel there by Marcel Breuer. And uh, Marcel Breuer was an atheist uh, German modernist who was a, a student of the Bauhaus. I believe he was either a student or a teacher there. Um, but uh, but he came in, and, and this was 1954. This is a, this is a decade before Vatican II even showed up, and so and they had already you know brought the altar to the center, uh, gotten rid of the altar rails, uh, put everyone sort of uh, around the altar as much as they could, and 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 was a radical uh, liturgical departure from what what came before. But but I, I think there's a part of it was that they had this sort of radical uh, liturgical thought but also this cultural sort of uh inferiority complex that the you know the catholic catholic world was uh still stuck with these old gothic and classical churches uh that uh these you know ignorant uh sort of people in the pews uh were attached to and loved but but the rest of the world culturally was was embracing this exciting new space age thing called modernism and we've got to get on the bus here Otherwise, we're going to be left behind, and 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 everyone's going to 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 leave the Catholic Church, and so they, so they brought in modernism as much as they could, uh, architecturally speaking, even before liturgical things. Um, and so it was a it was a very, uh, a very destructive time. So you saw even before Vatican II, you saw a lot of d- destruction of, of the interiors of churches to you know modernize them. You know, a lot of, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of attempts to kind of, I guess, reverse the recovation in, in a lot of these churches. And, you, and we've seen that. Um, I've seen pictures of, of different places that have sort of sought to go back and, and recover what was lost. And of course, usually that's, it's impossible to do entirely. A lot of that, those things are gone and so forth. And, uh, but nonetheless, what, what should someone do? Is there anything someone can do with, say, a, a bad church? You're just sort of stuck with a bad church. Is there anything you can do with it ultimately, other than going back and doing kind of what what the uh, what the modernists did and and tear it down and, and build something else that's actually better in place of it? Well, the good news is uh, most of those buildings, which those church buildings, which were built in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s are uh, in such poor shape that um, they're basically falling apart right now. So we can so, rebuild them. So, so that's pretty, encouraging pretty news. Uh, the other, the other way to do it is, yeah, you can you can do things to make things uh, more sort of liturgically correct. Um, looking towards looking at uh, you know a number of number of uh, thinkers who think about this, uh, Dennis McNamara is one of the, one of the better ones. And, and Duncan Stroik, one of who was, uh, my mentor, uh, have written a number of, of really good books on, on church architecture and how to do that and bring back this sense of the holy that, that was sort of missing in all of these things. Um, but yeah, uh, as far as a historic church, like bringing back what was there before is, is, is quite easily done. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be, uh, exactly what was there before. 
for instance, the church that uh, I did the renovation for in Charlottesville, uh, the high altar was not what, what they had there originally, but uh, we recreated one there uh, to to emulate what, what they had, the existing altars that they did still have that we restored back to a, a, a sane arrangement. Um, but uh, but my my, uh, my philosophy when it comes to historic buildings is always to make it look like uh, it had always been there, or at least it belongs there. Right. Uh, I, I want people to, to not think that it was something brand new, um, which, of course, modernists hate that idea of, of adding something that, that looks old. Uh, but really, it's not looking old. It's looking like it belongs. And, and that's right. You know, it goes with you know the city, but it also goes with within a building, you know. You, we put an addition or a renovation to something. Uh, we want it to match what's there. So if it's gothic, it should be gothic. If it's classical, it should be classical. But it should also match the materials and the style and 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 everything else that belongs there. But uh, um, which is which makes it difficult when we're talking about one of these modernist churches, which is uh, you know how do you deal with that? Well, you know I've I've seen a number of churches that have they're 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 almost entirely in the round where well that we can we can rearrange that pretty easily without having to to do much at least architecturally that's sort of alien to it um but having that sense of uh, of of sacredness to it uh, it's important to note that a church has a very specific uh lineage and a very specific language to it especially the catholic church that um it it it, it goes back to the Old Testament, and it goes back to the tabernacle and the temple. Um, these two things, of course, were uh, the tabernacle was literally dictated by God. If we were to believe that, as Catholics, we do believe that 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 Moses was given the dimensions of this sacred space where God would come and man could encounter Him and be in His presence. And so the temple takes those same proportions and takes that same thing and it has a model. So it has these two spaces. It has the, um, uh, the holy place, which is the nave, and then the holy of holies where, where the priests would be there to offer up sacrifice and God literally be there in his presence. And so in the New Testament times, we have that same form. We have a nave and a sanctuary. And in there, the sanctuary is there where the priest is there, and he was able to encounter God. And as Catholics, we encounter God in the Eucharist. So God is literally present, just as he was literally present in the tabernacle and the temple. And so having that sense of creating um, a sanctuary, a separate place, a special place, a place that we can observe and we can be a, a part of the things that go on there, but but that that it's set apart and set aside, which symbolizes the fact that God is really present there. That's, I think, one of the things that should be done in every church, regardless of style. Uh, it's there. And uh, something I forgot to write on every year, uh, Good Friday sort of come comes and uh, and goes without me uh, writing this article that I've I've meant to write a number of years ago that uh, there's a particular line in Brideshead Revisited where Cordelia talks about lamenting how they were shutting down the house and that they they shut down the 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 chapel in 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 at Brideshead 
they shut down the chapel and they emptied out the tabernacle. And she said, it's like Good Friday every day there now. <laughs> and so I start to think about this and I think about the churches that you have that don't have a tabernacle in the sanctuary. So in the 60s and the 70s, this was became the fad that the tabernacle should not be in the sanctuary because the liturgical action that's going on there is distracted by uh, having a tabernacle there. But well, on, on Good Friday, what do you do when the, when the rubrics actually say you're supposed to empty the tabernacle and, and have the sanctuary empty? So there's this day where, where it's literally supposed to be empty. It sort of in, in, implies that the rest of the year that there should be a tabernacle with something there. So, so that, again, is another thing to point to, where there should be the tabernacle. It should be the presence of God that's in the, ta- in, in the sanctuary at all times. So, so that's, that's, those are the sort of theological things that um, I, I think someone ought to do for a church. And I'll, I'll direct people to your website where you have uh, some, uh, some projects you have, you've worked on as well as some proposals. Uh, one of the proposals that I, that I uh, am particularly intrigued by is your, is your monastery proposal in the Southwest United States. And I saw that you had, you had mentioned that, uh, that your desire was to build something that would, that would stand a thousand years. And that's not the kind of thinking we, we see from architects very much these days, I, I don't think. Well, no, I, I think uh, architecture today, and particularly the building industry, is very much geared towards uh, getting things done as quickly and as if cheaply as possible to make the most money uh, possible. Uh, uh, architecture buildings are sort of geared towards um, depreciation schedules rather than uh, continuing to have a uh, institution a physical home for an institution which can last generations. So a church, of course, a monastery has every intent to be there forever, uh, at least until, uh, until uh, the rapture comes. <laughs> but uh, of course, we Catholics won't really believe in that, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, and, and, until revelation, uh, we're, there should be always someone there praying and, and, and making it. So why shouldn't we build something to last a thousand years uh, and certainly there are churches uh, that we see in Europe that have lasted a thousand years or 2000 years or more. Uh, right. And so uh, we have the ability to do this. This isn't new technology. Why shouldn't we do this? Um, institutions like a church should always uh, consider the longevity of, of the building to be uh, of primary importance because uh, I, I always point this out that um uh, when you're building for just you, you can build cheaply because the thing will fall apart before you, you know, after you're dead and you don't really care. But if you're building for a church, you're assuming the community is going to continue forever. What do you want to do? Do you want to give a gift to future generations? Or do you want to give them a burden? Um, and so if you've, you've burdened them with, uh, expensive repairs, uh, maintenance and, and, uh, and repair and replacement of things that have fallen apart, or you've created something that lasts so long that they they have to hardly do anything to it to keep it up. You know, pull some weeds and make sure the gutters are cleaned out. 
And so uh, I think that's it's, it's critically important. Uh, I think just uh, economically speaking, I think that's critically important too because uh, there's lots of churches that have uh, deferred maintenance that just racks up over time. And um, these uh, these cheaply built churches, that just racks up even faster. I think it's hard uh, as Americans for us to think about something lasting a thousand years because we, whereas if you, if you go to Europe – that's actually not uncommon at all. You can see all sorts of things that have been around for a thousand years, or as you said, much, even much longer than that. But in the U S we don't have anything like that um, in, in, in this hemisphere uh, other than, if, you know, if we go back maybe in central America to, to some, uh, some native architecture, but uh, in, you know, the United States, we don't really have anything like that. And those things aren't, aren't used. We don't have any, anything that we operate with. You know, we, if something's a hundred years old, we consider that old. Um, and, uh, you know, you go back older than that and, and then, you know, it's, we're very impressed by it, but, but on a European scale or an Asian, uh, timetable, those, those really aren't very long. And so I think that, that sort of baked into our mindset that things are, or maybe short-lived. Yeah, that, that that for sure is is something that Americans have a, have a particular problem with. Um, I think it was very interesting. I was listening to the the podcast uh, a, a couple weeks back, I guess, or it was last week with um uh, Grace Olmstead. You know, um, her her podcast was very very close to home because uh, she um, grew grew up very close to where I grew up, and in, particularly in the West, uh, we have this sort of uh, frontier. Uh, mentality of, of, of we're always moving, we're always on the move. And so we don't want to get sort of held down in a place um, and put down roots that are too deep because we're all sort of moving away. Um, and I think, I think America has that, has that sort of baked into the very DNA of who we are. I think Tocqueville, I think uh, points this out too, because we are all like it or not descended from people who, uh, came from somewhere else, uh, just about, you know, there's a few, you know, the Native Americans here, of course, are not, but, you know, I guess even they, you look far enough back, but, um, uh, but, uh, but those from Europe or Asia or, or Africa who have, uh, who have come to America, even if they've been here for, you know, 10 generations, they were all part of, they were all pioneers in a sense. I was always struck. I was reading about a number of years ago about the early uh, settlers in uh, in New York, which was then uh, New Amsterdam. You know, and these were just these were poor dirt farmers, and then they became uh, the Stuyvesants, and they became the 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 um, uh, 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 the Vanderbilts. You know, these were these were people who had almost nothing, but they they came and they decided to get on a rickety boat and come across and do something. So they were always sort of building and, but they were always sort of building and looking for the next thing. Um, what's interesting is the people who sort of put down roots and, and last a long time. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think, but I, I think this is also sort of a, a new thing in, in America now in the sort of 20th century, um, uh, second half of 20th century that sort of, um, modernism sort of emphasized it even more that you know we're we're building for a future we're not really stuck in the past and we're not really um we're not really interested in 
cultivating and 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 uh, caring for and preserving the past but we're very much interested in the future and progress uh you know the space age i think was a big sort of psychologically to america was a big big thing for people in the 50s and the 60s you know affected everything you know architecture cars everything was all sort of looking to the future you know you know everything had to be remade and made new for the space age that we were we were going to live in, you know, we had to reconstitute orange juice into Tang because that was, <laughs> right. that was we the, all, the way we were to all going to be Jetsons and, and zip around in our flying cars and so forth. Right. And so there's, a, there's this sort of, um, uh, positivity about it. There's this, there's this, um, uh, ambition that we're going to be doing all of these new and exciting things. But, uh, but then I think, I think what it comes down to is sort of crashes, crashes down to earth is that we're just uh as human beings we can only progress uh so far so fast but we have to kind of come back to our come back to our roots in some sense um and and find places that are home you know scruton talks a lot about that about trying to find our home and i think we have a, a, when we we've progressed so much and that human nature changes so much we we sort of feel at least psychologically homeless right yeah i, I think that's right would uh, uh, we're we're right around the two year anniversary of the uh, the tragic fire at Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, and uh, I know you you wrote a little bit about uh, the 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 fire in Notre Dame in in Crisis Magazine, and there was a lot of there was a lot of debate and there were a lot of, uh, we saw a lot of proposals floated about what should we do with Notre Dame? And um, it's, it seems like anytime there's a chance, it's sort of modernist architects pounce, right? You know, well, we've got, we, here is our chance to finally, to finally have our, leave our mark on Notre Dame. And, and the clear sentiment seemed to be, and ultimately won out, that it should actually just be rebuilt like it was. But, uh, but it was, it really seemed like there for a while, it might've been a little bit of a touch and go kind of thing about what would be done with Notre Dame. Yeah, it definitely was for a while there. Um, the modernist architects, um, yeah, exactly. They, they, they found an opportunity to, uh, as, uh, the words of, uh, the former mayor of Chicago, never never let a good uh, crisis go to waste um uh, and so they 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 saw it as an opportunity to be able to say listen look look at what we can do we can make this thing new and make it make it uh live up to what we are um but um this is this concept that architecture has to always be of its time uh really is is sort of opposed by uh, a place like notre dame it's this is a place that's timeless. Um, it is was made in a particular time, but but it, it uh, the importance of that building is not not that it is historic in any way, but that it is it is in some sense timeless. Uh, my my good friend uh, Christopher Liberatos pointed out a, a little while back that um, there uh, any building that you see today you could be called historic, but it's not a historic building because it's there. It's a living building. It's a living thing and a living place. And um, to 
to say something's historic means it's gone. It's gone. It's only there to history. Uh, and so if we call it that building historic, we, we're saying what it was and the shape that it was and the, the way it was built and the way it was decorated and what it was, that's just something in the past rather than now. And so what we have to do is we have to make it update it to now by putting all these new things in it. But instead of saying it's a living thing, so if, you know, if, if you've got a, if a part of your body is injured, what you want it is to have it back the way it was so that it can be this living and breathing thing that, that, uh, that was what it was and has its essence. And of course things change over time because it's a building, but, um, but there was never anything there that was, uh, that was so radical as what, uh, some of the proposals were. Right. I mean, there's, there's the, uh, there's sort of the assumption, uh, that underlies that, that, that there was something wrong with it or that it could possibly be improved upon. But when you have something like Notre Dame, a, a building like that, or, or if you want to go, um, East, say something like the Taj Mahal, you know, this is a, this is a, a building you, you can't, you can't improve it. It right. just, it, it is what it is. Right, <laughs> and, right, and right. it, it, it's, it, it uh, you can bring whatever geniuses you want. You're not going to make it better than what it is. And so um, we have those buildings like that, that kind of stand as exemplars. And I think maybe from, from sort of the, the classic traditionalist mindset that for what we're trying to do is, is use those as models and try to live up to them, not, replicate them as we talked about we kind of live up to uh to the standard um that they set and uh and and appreciate them for what they are yeah my um my good friend uh uh anthony visco is an artist in uh in, in philadelphia he always said um he was he was one of these folks who was uh trained as a modernist art artist back in the 70s and had a had a sort of uh, uh epiphany and became a classicist and um, but he always said there were there were only two kinds of artists those who could paint the mona lisa and those who painted a mustache on the mona lisa <laughs> and so <clears throat> so what we have is um is is the 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 thing is is that most artists and most architects today uh can really only paint the mustache on the most mona lisa they really can't they can't make the mona lisa they can't do that anymore they can't they can't build Notre Dame. Uh, and so what we do is we, we, we say we we're painting them, we're, we're painting the mustache on it. So that's my mark is that I'm making this thing, uh, worse than it was before. Uh, so I can, I can make myself pointed to me. Um, famously, I, I, I need to find this somewhere, but, uh, anecdotally, uh, it was said that uh, Frank Gehry found out uh, he walked into Notre Dame and then he found out they didn't know who the architect was and he started crying because uh, because they didn't they didn't have any credit. <laughs> and, and so it wasn't about the architect; it was about the building. And so he found that to be sad. And so so we see a lot of those. So again, this this goes back to like my mentality when I'm renovating a church. It's like uh, again, I don't want it to seem like it was done in 2021. I want it to seem like it was done in 1920, and therefore the credit that is given to me is marginal, if none. Nobody's going to expect it; it's mine. So, so that's that's. Uh, I think that's the mentality we have to have: is that the building should be uh, uh, stand for itself and not just for the the person who built it. 
Right. The, the, the point needs to be the building itself. What, because that, I mean, that's the object. That's, that's what's meant to blend in. It's what's meant to, uh, to, uh, to be useful to the community. And sort of that goes back to that, that sort of individualistic versus community mindset that we, we talked a little bit about uh, kind of at the beginning that, you know, what, what I'm doing ultimately is not to serve myself or my own ego, but rather it ought to be, how can I help the community thrive and flourish and maybe do so for a thousand years, like you were talking about uh, with the monastery. Yeah. And, and not only just to be useful, but to be beloved and to make something that's a loved place. You know, it's just, we don't, we don't love something from where it came from. We love it because of what it is. We love, we love our family because, because of who they are, not, not necessarily because they came from somewhere. Right. But uh, our friends, you know, we, we don't love them because of uh, how they were made and where they came from, but, but, but for, for who they are as they are. So, and not how we can, what we can get out of them, but, but, but because of uh, their own essence. So we sort of started all of this a while back, uh, sort of communicating uh, about this episode when you mentioned, um, a book written by uh, the current Prince of Wales, uh, Charles, uh, a book that came out about a little over 30 years ago, actually. It's called A Vision of Britain. And uh, it, uh, you had mentioned that you were kind of revisiting that book. And and it was a book that I was, I was aware that it existed, (laughs) but I, I had never, never thought about it uh, seriously or, uh, or, looked at it at all. Although I do have a quite a bit of appreciation for Prince Charles, uh, and a lot of the work that he's done and, and the opinions that he has. So I got a copy of it and, and, uh, by the way, if anybody wants a copy of it, they are, you can get one used quite inexpensively, uh, online. Uh, I mean, $10 under $10 or, or so, but it's really an extraordinary book because if you, if you start reading it, it, it sounds like, Russell Kirk or Roger Scruton could have written it. Yes, I mean, um, it's very interesting. Uh, Prince Charles, um, I don't, I don't know how he 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 came up on architecture, but he he sort of admits that he just was always interested in it. But um, what's what's very interesting to me is that he has a very uh, a very sort of classically conservative um, mindset towards architecture. He said that it that. You know, he lays out these ten principles, and he talks about place. Place right. is a place where, you know, that that something really should belong where it is. Uh, scale, hierarchy; these are you know parts of the, the principles. But um, but that uh, but that 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 architecture should should befit the place that it's in, and should befit the people that um, that inhabit it. And um, and I think he's very, he's also very uh, keen. To understand, and I think I, I, I'm probably going to butcher this quote, but um, but Kirk had a had a had a really sort of struck me very early, early on that you know the idea that um, he had a trust in what the common person wanted rather than the the the, the sort of uh, 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 
I'm trying to trying to get to it. Uh, the 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 idea of these these people sort of coming up with a new sort of utopian vision for things, uh, or uh, speculators, or calculators, or, or something right. like that. I'm sure you probably find that quote better. But um, but the, but the idea that that somebody else could come along and sort of reinvent the wheel and, and reinvent everything and say, well, this is better. You shouldn't. You should want this, right? Uh, but but Prince Charles, I think, has this. This uh, this sense that the the English people, uh, they know what they want. They want their home. They want England. They want uh, they want the place that they live in to feel like the place that it, where they belong in it. And um, and you find that uh, you know most of the people uh, in the country agreed with him. And um, you know he got in a whole lot of trouble because he he called um, the new uh, addition to I think it was the the British uh, Museum. Or by so a, I think it's the library. I the mean. British Library, yes. Yeah. He called it a a, ma- a carbuncle on the face of a beloved friend, uh, and so <laughs> the uh, you know the modernist architectural establishment just absolutely just just hated it. But uh, but uh, but the public at large was just sort of nodded and say, yeah, he's he's right. He's entirely right. And so and so you know you know because of this because of the speech and because of his book and all of these things in england and in, in throughout great britain the um uh, the level of architecture at least the awareness of of the need for beauty has come up and you know the the late roger scruton was the chairman of that um committee the the build uh can't remember exactly what it was build beautiful commission but they 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 were talking about building new homes and he said beauty should be an essential part of that not just simply just warehousing people but giving people homes and something that was beautiful and of course the the architectural establishment just savaged him uh, as they did to uh to prince charles and and much worse actually i think because they they slandered him in a real real sense taking things out of context entirely but but you saw the sort of um uh, viciousness of the architectural establishment the modernist establishment which is just it can be absolutely uh vicious uh because they are uh, entirely ideologically uh committed to this it's so one simply cannot build traditional one simply must not it's immoral to do so right yeah i, th- I think that that's right that this um the opposition to a, a, a sort of this traditionalist vision, a, a vision of beauty, a vision of, of the, of the humane, um, that it is, it, it's not simply we prefer this, but we, we are ideologically opposed to that idea. And it, and it goes to show what a subversive thing uh, what a subversive thing sort of modern art, modernist architecture is, and it's it's ultimately anti-human because people people don't don't want it. They don't they don't uh, desire it, and and yet the uh, they also don't flourish in it. And uh, and the the modernist. Uh, idea is well you know the, this is what you're going to have and you're going to and you're and you're going to like it or or at least you're going to be miserable in it but you're this is what you know you're you're going to have no choice and um and people like Kirk and Scruton and and Prince Charles have said you know we we have some knowledge of how to build these things in ways that people enjoy and 
uh, and embrace and and can can flourish as as human beings and that um, that ought to be I would think uh, a fundamental to our approach to literally anything uh, that, that we undertake as humans yeah I think it's um uh, very interesting that um, because because people want to have humane places and they want to have a humane place to live and architects aren't providing it. I think it's very interesting now that something like 90% of homes today are built without architects. Um, the people who, who, who are, who are out there who are supposed to be providing us uh, the places that we should want to live in and, and love are just simply not doing it anymore. And so now we have this sort of vacuum which is being sort of filled in by um, you know, speculators and, and uh, tract home builders and, 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 and engineers who, who aren't really qualified to make places into something beautiful now. Right. We have uh, the, the buildings that we do have, uh, people have rejected a lot uh, the sort of the modernist idea. But then, like you say, the, the, the homes that are, that we are given are not, aesthetically pleasing either they're right. uh you know they uh, i i call them you know uh garages with an attached home you have uh, with the you know where the garage just completely do- dominates the facade and it's it's um it's all very car centric rather than human centric which i guess uh, there's a right. lot to be said about right. about that too and we've, we've sort of we've touched on that but but uh the the design isn't good and and uh Architects ought to be there to, to step in for that. And so that there's, there's kind of a, f- a failure of the profession in a lot of ways right. to, to give, to give people, uh, s- uh, something that they, that they would enjoy having. I mean, and, and, and talking about Prince Charles with that, he, he has as kind of an outgrowth of, of, um, of his project, which I guess kind of started with this book. And in, in a lot of ways, this book was kind of a failure in that it really didn't stop the destruction of the London skyline that he was trying right. to have an influence on. But he he started this this sort of project town called Poundbury uh, on land of, of on his estate uh, that is f- sort of a model town following these kind of old traditional. British building approaches and and uh, city building approaches. Yeah, Poundbury is a, a remarkable place, and uh, 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 the planner, the initial planner I mentioned before, was Leon Creer, uh, again who who was a founding sort of member of New Urbanism, but not a signatory. Uh, but uh, but he his his sort of principles are, are definitely there, but also sort of looking at and 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 understanding and. And, and, and emulating the best parts of what traditional English uh, towns uh, were. Uh, you know, it's centered around a, a, a market square. Uh, now there's, I think, a, another sort of square that uh, there's a, a sort of large classical hotel that's built there. It seems like there's new things going up all the time. And um, <clears throat> what's interesting is that, you know, Prince Charles has done this and uh, he's just received criticism uh just merciless criticism over the years for building this Disneyland there. And 
I think it was remarkable. Uh, about a year or two ago, I, I read a review from a, a modernist critic from, I think, The Guardian or, or somewhere. And uh, he, he said uh, he went there and he said, I'm ashamed, but I have to admit it, that it's actually a lovely place. And the people who are there are not just, uh, you know, they're not just the, the, the Stepford wives or, or something like that. But it is actually a town where, where there are normal people living there and they're they're enjoying living there and they, they love the place and they and they um, have created a real community and a real place. And um, he has to admit that it was a, 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 an actual success and that um I know there may be particular buildings which are sort of not don't live up to it, but what city doesn't have horrible buildings? But um, but overall, it, it it's 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 an actual uh, embodiment of these principles, and I think it's it's an incredible model to be able to look at and say, listen, we can we can build this way, and it's good to do so, and it is uh, uh, it's good for people, and people enjoy it and love it, and. Why wouldn't we do this? You know, architects have basically said they've abrogated these things to, to, uh, to people who are uneducated and, uh, and uh, don't really study these things and look at it or have the, the, the time to study it. We've abrogated it to the, just the builders instead of saying, can we actually provide what people want? Let's study this, see what they love to do and actually give them that. I don't know how this couldn't be a success by doing that. So I'm, you know, I've tried to do that at, at every turn in my, my career is to give people what, what they really want. Right. And and there's plenty to draw from with that as, as the Prince is showing with, with Poundberry, it's really, uh, he receives, uh, I think he's, he's dismissed in a lot of circles, but I am actually a, um, uh, a, a defender of the prince, not necessarily everything the prince has chosen to do with his life, but uh, as a thinker, uh, I think he's he's quite serious and not uh, and not taken as seriously as he ought to be, particularly I think by traditionalists and conservatives uh, who I think uh, haven't really paid attention to a lot of the things he's written. I mean, I really think for me. I was really impressed with the vision uh, of Britain and want to spend a lot more time with it because he, his 10 principles are, are uh, very thoughtful. Um, and, um, and to me seem uh, spot on he's done. And then of course he's, he's had this, this uh, uh, practical project of Poundberry and also the Prince's foundation school for traditional arts, which uh, I actually had uh, in an earlier podcast, an artist uh, who had had been in that school and he has sought to kind of reintroduce not simply Western uh, artistic uh, classical and traditional Western ideas, but, but has drawn a lot from the East and uh, particularly um, uh, Persian and, and Indian and so forth uh, traditional techniques uh, in the arts and is kind of, train people in those to infuse that into uh, the artistic community at large. And I think there's a lot, uh, there's a lot of just sheer practical value of that. Here are people who can do these things and enjoy them and do them well. Yes. I think, uh, I think that's an incredible uh, thing. I think, I think for me that uh, the, the Prince has a, has a, has a tremendous sense of uh, wanting to serve 
the people of the United Kingdom. And I think, you know, the arts and architecture, and you particularly mentioned, you know, the East and Eastern um, art, you know, a lot of conservatives sort of poo-poo him for sort of, you know, kowtowing supposedly to, you know, Muslims and, and whatnot. But I think, I think he has a genuine um, concern for the people of his nation, which are now much more sort of polyglot and than, um, than uh, people would like to think, you know, there, there, there are people who are, uh, in, you know, they are citizens of the United Kingdom and they consider themselves that, but who have uh, roots in, in, in many other countries in India, of course, being one of the big, uh, big ones. Uh, and so he has a l- sort of sense that uh, these things have something to contribute to it. And, you know, the arts, uh, I'm glad to see that. And anyway, because I think, I think they do have a lot to contribute, but. Um, right. I, I think so. And, and, you know, we can, we can talk and complain all we want about the direction things have gone and, and are going and so forth. But unless, as you have done, we have people take practical, concrete steps to design things, to create art, whatever it may be, in a traditionalist way, then all we're doing is sort of throw, throwing tomatoes at at something we don't like, which, you know, sometimes there's something to be said for that, but, um, we, we need to be able to be more than critics. Uh, we need to be contributors, I think. Correct. Correct. And I think, um, I think what's, what's an exciting time that we live in now is that we're, we're starting to move out of just purely criticism of, of, of the modernist establishment. And we're actually being able to, to step up and actually create things that, um, that last and will last and that, um, that are, uh, disproving a lot of their, um, their myths and their lies. I think so. Well, Eric, I appreciate you being on and, uh, I will link the articles that I mentioned uh, and also uh, the lecture that uh, I referenced, I believe. Was it given it? Was it given it Notre Dame? Um, I think it was at the St. John Cantius. Okay. May have been. I will link all of those things in show notes. And uh, a lot of this, I could, I could go on. Oh, uh, I could go on for hours. (laughs) My problem is I could just talk. Uh, But, Perhaps we uh, we can revisit this uh, at a future time. Uh, last thing, if if someone is interested in learning more about traditionalist architecture, what are uh, some uh, some books, accessible books that perhaps uh, they could they could start with? I will say that that. I think they ought to get this this uh, book by Prince Charles, A Vision of Britain. Uh, I'll throw that in, but I'll defer to your expertise rather than my uh, layman's opinion. Oh, um, as far as books, I'd, I'd have a hard time coming up with a, a book right off the top of my head. I, I suppose the um, Thomas Gordon Smith has a very excellent sort of book, uh, Classical Architecture, Rule and Invention. Uh, that's an excellent book. Uh, James Stevens Curl, who's an art historian, uh, his is sort of more of a critical sort of looking at the sort of ideology of modernism and how it sort of took over. It's called Making Dystopia. Uh, I found that to be excellent. Um, of course, um, uh, Tom Wolfe, uh, 
Richmond's own uh, Tom Wolf uh, has uh, from Bauhaus to our house. Yes, was very uh, formative. Um, I think I, anything. I, I have um, that. Yeah, that one's great. I think uh, Roger Scruton's. Uh, actually, uh, Roger Scruton's. Oh, um, he has art and imagination. And an intelligent person's guide to modern culture is very good on on architecture, as okay. it, it's mostly on art in general. Um, those those would be excellent. Uh, other uh, other resources would be the Institute of Classical Architecture and Art, uh, which you could find at uh, classicist.org. Uh, they are very good. Uh, they have a number of lectures on there by uh, Calder Loth, who is uh, also uh, he's uh, the Virginia uh, State uh, Architectural Historian, and uh, he has some excellent lectures there on classical architecture. Uh, but uh, it also, uh, if you want to follow my uh, Twitter, uh, it's at Eric Bootsma. I have been, uh, along with my colleague Joel Pidel, been offering uh, classes in, in, in classical architecture, a lot more sort of detailed studios, but, uh, we're doing that. Um, and then also trying to, to, to link to a lot of things, uh, like the right. and, classicist. And I will link to your Twitter account as well as, uh, link to the, to the classes, uh, that you've, that you've been offering and, uh, how often do those come up, uh, sort of to, to be I, signed up for yeah, I'd say um, I get an opportunity to do a lecture about every once every uh, six months or a year or mm-hmm. so. So, gotcha. Um, but uh, occasionally get to do you get to come onto somebody's podcast and uh, and talk about architecture for an hour and and make it seem like to me it was only about five minutes. So, <laughs> well, there's a whole lot more that uh, that I've jotted down that we just didn't get a chance to to talk about, but. Uh, that maybe we need a sequel episode uh, in, the, in the not too distant future and revisit some of these things. But Eric Bootsma, I really appreciate you being on, and uh, there will be links to all of those things. And, uh, it's been a pleasure. An thanks a lot. Pleasure.